and welcome to episode 19 of the Different Doctor, Same Old Shit podcast. Each week we watch a story based on Doctor Order and dissect it. I'm Mo from France, and to my west, the ever-delicious, ever-delightful, ever-delectable Dr. L. How you doing, Doc? Very well, thank you very much. It's a beautiful warm weather at the moment, which means my 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 normal liquescent state has um, sort of receded to something approaching humanity. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm feeling quite human these now, days. I've got the window open uh, at the moment um, because of the heat. But so at any at any point in time, the local church bells could start ringing because this is it's Tuesday night, so and and it, this is the, uh, the 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 church bell ringers practice night. So if that happens, dear listener, I, I will close the window as soon as I can. Oh, in fact, just as I speak, can we hear it? There we go. So I'm going to have to close. I'm going to have to close the window and turn the room. And you're going to boil. I am. Turn the room into a fucking sauna for the next half an hour. But hopefully they'll be finished by nine o'clock, and I'll open the window again. Um, It is. It is lovely weather at the moment, isn't it? I've I've enjoyed a a, a lovely walk down the Avon with with the ever loyal. West Highland Terrier, which is a genuine delight for an hour or so this afternoon. Um, there is nothing quite like a walk down the river on a sunny day with a loyal hound at your side, Doc. Let me tell you. I absolutely believe it. Uh, mm. Considering the closest I got was to sit outside and drink coffee in Digbeth this mm. afternoon. Oh, uh, yes. Not, not, not precisely comparable. <laughs> not, not quite precisely comparable experiences. No, no. Um, for, for, for people that don't know Birmingham, Digbeth is 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 a, is a particularly um, how can we describe it, Doc? It, it, like concrete jungle part of uh, Birmingham. I believe the modern expression for it is urban, isn't it? Oh yes, sure. Yeah, it's very <laughs> urban. Um, Has it been gentrified at all since last time I visited? Well, allegedly. Um, I've actually sort of read articles about Digbeth, the next place to live, um, right. but you would be, I, I, I don't know if there's a completely diff- different definition to the word Digbeth to the one I'm familiar with, but uh, <laughs> I mean, I, I, they've, they've demolished the railway tavern as well. Oh, that's such a shame, yes. That was a nice pub. Is the Dubliner still there? Um, the Dubliner, I, I haven't been like on the bus station side um, mm. for really quite a long time. Uh, when I had to take the bus through there on my way to Mosley, um, I sort of used to bury my head in my book and, and, and try to ignore the other people getting on the bus because, um, honestly, the, um, what shall I say, the humanity that gets on the bus outside Digbeth bus station um, are not all the most, all, always the most wholesome specimens. No, no, they're, they're a sight um, to behold some of them. That's definitely true. That's definitely true. Um, to give you an idea, um, memorably, uh, the last time I had to work there on a Christmas Eve, um, I was on the bus, um, old man gets on, um, muttering and swearing to himself, coming up the stairs, nothing remotely unusual about that. Um, gets to the top step, top of the stairs, sits down, sits down, rummages in a plastic bag, continues muttering and swearing, um, and then starts shrieking. 
<laughs> like he's being tortured with a blow lamp and takes off all of his clothes. Oh, God. Abandons his clothes, picks up his plastic bag and gets off the... And I've got to remind you, this is December in Birmingham he's doing this. Yeah, they did. But maybe he was suffering from extreme hypothermia because that, isn't that one of the... Um... Isn't that one of the, the, the side effects? You know, like pe people that, that get extreme hypothermia, uh, along with altitude sickness, I think maybe is a factor of this as well. One, one of the instincts, despite how cold it is, people take all of their clothes off for some reason. Yeah, I suspect he was suffering from ex extreme sidrology. Sidrology, yes, very good, Doc. Yes, 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 yes. Are we, are we, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Some su super strong ale of some kind or other. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I suspect he was into his third litre of scrumpy jack that morning. <laughs> We've all been there, Doc. We've all been there. Come on, let's be honest. <laughs> um, no corrections again this week, folks, so you'll be pleased to know. It's almost as if I haven't bothered editing the last couple of episodes, is it, Doc? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's some catch-ups to do, but there will be thematically appropriate places to do those. Um, very specifically, there's a couple of things that I should have brought out about Fort Doomsday, mm -hmm. but it'll be more thematically appropriate for me to do those when we get around to doing Kinder. Oh, fair enough. So yeah, I'll so, save it for them. Yeah, so that, that, that's roughly three months' time. So hang on to your hats. And hang on to your hats, folks. Um, Welcome to part one of the show, which we call TARDIS Talk. As you know by now, this is the topic of the week. Um, give me a number, Doc, between one and three. Three, please. All right, then. Um, watching old shows in HD. So this is shows that were originally kind of filmed in, in standard definition that are now being broadcast in HD. Does it improve the experience for you, Doc, or does it accentuate the flaws? What do we think about this? Um, so here's a really stupid question. Uh, how would I know? So if, for instance, there's like the Yesterday Channel or the Talking Pictures Channel, which mm. occasionally show interesting old television programs, mm. that I'm not all that bothered to add to my collection. But if, let's say, Hunter's Walk or something like that um, is on and I'm at a loose end or I've got something to do with my hands and I want my eyes occupied, yeah, I'll probably put Yesterday on. Mm -hmm. um, and watch an episode of Hunter's Walk. How, how would I know if that was being broadcast in HD? Well, look, I think your eyes will tell you that, Doc, surely. Um, you know, have you got a HD TV? I, I don't even know. Ah, oh, so maybe maybe this is... We're going down a dead end here then, Doc. If you, if you haven't got a HD TV or you don't know, then, then, then maybe this is an impossible question for you to answer. Um, I've got a television which I got from Cash Converters because I, I went into Cash Converters and asked them for the cheapest television they had and they sold <laughs> me one for £25. Well, if it cost you 25 quid, I guarantee it's not HD. So that's the end of the topic right. of the week, guys. There we go. That's the end of <laughs> Sorry that. about that. That's all right. It's just the way the cookie crumbles. Gives us more time to talk about <laughs> Gives us more time to talk about the story. Um, you mean to say that you don't have an opinion? Well, I have, but it's, it's, it's nice to... It's nice to fire off each other. But go on then. But, yeah, but, you know, for shits and giggles... Um, 
I mean, I generally think it does the latter, which is that it accentuates the flaws. Recently, and, and, and the inspiration for this question, actually, um, I, I'm living with um, a couple of new housemates, and <clears throat> you know they, 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 they've got kind of a they've got interest in sci-fi, but they're not like super nerds like we are, um, and. <clears throat> I've been I've been kind of introducing them to a bit of Trek, <laughs> not classic Trek, not 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 TOS, but TNG and DS9, um, and so you know I've kind of been handpicking what I consider to be the you know the the the, the stories that would that would most engage them, you know. So I've kind of been showing them the more cerebral episodes, to be honest, and crucially the ones that don't require. A lot of prior knowledge you know there's there's no point showing them an episode from season seven of ds9 because they wouldn't have a fucking clue what was happening because you need to know so much backstory by that point um so for example you know for those that know their trek i showed them darmok um the, the season five opener is it not the opener but the the one after the resolution to the cliffhanger from season four um yeah you know the one doc well it, it's Obviously, having an interest in linguistics and communication theory and things like this, it, it, it's it's sort of unsurprisingly one of my favourites. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Can can you can can you sum up the the, the scenario for those that might not know, Doc? Um, well, it, they they do this quite a lot in Star Trek, and it's a member of the Enterprise crew gets stranded on a planet with the sole member of some of the spaceship crew or some other alien race, who and it, it's it's a thing. I, I believe the first iteration of this was an original series episode called Arena, um, where Captain Kirk and some other alien creature are abducted onto the surface of an alien planet, and they're expected <coughs> to fight for the entertainment of their captors. Yeah, and, that's, and the fa- they, that's, that's, that's the famous picture, isn't it, Doug, that, that, that you kind of see everywhere of Kirk fighting that kind of big rubber green lizard thing. Which I believe is called Gorn. Oh, great. I didn't know that. Brilliant. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I believe it's called Gorn. Um, but yes, it is. Mm. And then they do um, a next-gen episode where someone gets trapped on the surface of the planet with a Romulan. Um, oh, yes. And that, that's the enemy. Yeah. And it's it's a good thing for Star Trek to do because in a series that's sort of so uh, focused on the ability and or inability of different alien races and different human beings to communicate with each other, um, I always find it's a really nice idea to take um, sort of rivals or enemies <coughs> or people with each other and put them in a situation where for a while at least, they have to put aside their differences because either they both survive or they both die. Yes. So uh, if I've got this right, so Darmok is one of those kind of things, except Darmok, uh, the alien, um, comes from a species who communicate entirely in illusion and metaphor. Bry and Jiri at Lunga. Shaka. When the walls fell. Zina at Anzo. Zina and Baka. Darmok at Tanagra. Shaka. Mirab, his sails unfurled. Darmok. Mirab. Tamok. The river, Tamok. Darmok and Gilad at Tanagra. 
the universal translator doesn't work. Yeah, because um, because the universal translator can translate the words, but not the reference points. That's the crucial thing, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. So uh, uh, effectively, if if you're not from that culture, um, it's, I suppose, like trying to have a conversation with an extremely self-conscious hipster um, who <clears throat> can't help dropping postmodern references to everything every <clears throat> third sentence or more frequently than every third sentence. Uh -huh. the, 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 the example they give to explain it to the audience, which is a really good one, um, you know, the, 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 I think it's Crusher says, you know, it's a bit like, you know, you kind of know the words, but you don't know the reference. So it's a bit like somebody saying to you, Juliet on the balcony listening to Romeo. So we understand all of the words, but unless we know the context of what that actually means, it, it's meaningless. Yeah. And so what I appreciate is that I think Star Trek took the trouble to like have a number of serious academic linguists um, and communication theory specialists on its staff. And they, they, they have enough people around that they can sort of make this stuff work really, really well. Mm. Uh, I do believe this is the television programme that um, produced uh, three, uh, approximately three or almost complete natural languages. Well, certainly, you know, I, th I, th I think you can actually study Klingon at, at university if you're a twat. Well, I, it would be a legitimate thing to study if, for instance, you're doing a course in linguistics. Yeah. Um, because obviously it isn't, um, it isn't a language spoken by, it, it, isn't, a, it isn't a language which is naturally, naturally evolved to be spoken by any culture on earth. Mm -hmm. um, but it is syntactically complete. Or sure. During and if you wanted to make a study of, let's say, um, how verbs tend to conjugate, yes. um, then it would be unwise yes. to pick a language that was actually spoken on Earth for precisely the reasons we've just been talking about in the context of the episode Darmok. Mm. All languages on Earth have evolved to serve the needs of the culture that evolved them. Mm -hmm. But if you take um, a language that... so. Um, obviously Esperanto would be another good one. Yeah. Um, that's been pretty much cut from the whole cloth um, and devised in such a way as it's certainly possible to learn it. It's not so obtuse that you can't possibly learn it, but you mustn't necessarily expect it to resemble any language that's spoken on Earth. Then you can study different aspects of the things that all languages have. Well, I don't... Um, I think I think the crucial thing with Esperanto, the, one of the one of the main things they dispensed with were, were you know li, li, troublesome things like um, like irregular verbs, you know, so eat, ate, eaten, you know, for example. So so I, th I think all verbs conform to one rule, and there's no irregularity, which makes it, of course, much easier to learn. Sure. So I would be fascinated um, to get to know. So as, as Esperanto has become a more and more complete language. Um, I think it's probably on the decline now, but I think it probably had a high point at some point in the 50s or 60s when there was a serious push for it to, like, for instance, become the lingua franca of the, of, of the United Nations. Yeah. Um, so that, you know, it, it, it would level the playing field. Everyone in the room would have to learn at least foreign, um, one foreign language. Mm -hmm. um, but everyone would have to learn the same one. 
So when, when, when it had its big push behind it, I'd be fascinated to know whether, how much of their original intent they were able to preserve. Because obviously, once you turn a thing loose in the lab, once a language becomes a living language spoken by lots of different people, it's going to acquire nuance now, isn't it? Sure, yes, it's, it's going to mutate, you know, going to mutate as surely as something that burst forth from a laboratory in Wuhan. <laughs> no, much more surely than that. Oh, Doc, I, honestly, I'm, I'm, I, these so, church bells are going to be causing me problems. Go on, I've, I've closed the window again. Trouble you not, listener. We can edit. Um, so, please continue. Um, I think we've just gone off on a long tangent about oh, the episode did. of Darmok. This is a great episode. We did. Um, so, so, yeah, you know, so I've, I've been introducing my, my housemates to, to, to a bit of quality trek. Now, this is the first time I've ever watched Trek in HD. And my, by Jove, it looks weird. Um, you know, I've watched these episodes, you know, more times than I, than I care to admit to. Um, and I, I've always watched it in, in, in standard definition. You know, I, I originally watched them when they were broadcast on BBC Two. I mean, the, you know, I watched a bunch that were, that, that were shipped over to me kindly from America before they even got to the UK. Um, and they were very, very ropey in quality. Then, then, then the standard def definition on BBC Two, then I bought them on VHS. Um, and, 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 and that's, about, that's about the end of it in terms of, you know, the, the modernity of the format that I've, that I've watched this stuff on. I know them like the back of my hand. I'm, I'm watching them in HD. It's so peculiar. It just doesn't look right. I don't like it very much, Doc. It, it is, it's strange. Here's the question. What do they do about the aspect ratio? Oh, I, 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 I can't remember. I don't know. I seem to, it fills the screen. I'm sure about that. Um, so you, so you don't have like the top and tailing that, you know, that, you, that you're getting some kind of forced widescreen. Um, so it fills the screen somehow. It didn't feel like it was panning and scanning. Um, so no, I don't know. Without kind of rewatching it, I can't answer the question. Just all kinds of questions spring to mind. When I watch old four by three, I refuse to say sixteen by nine. When I yeah. watch old four by three telly um, on the television, I've got it very kindly puts vertical black bars on the left and right hand side of the screen for me. Sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, it, it just knows. Mm, mm. Yeah, and I prefer that actually. I, I prefer I prefer for it to retain the original aspects and, and and add the bars either either top or bottom. I much prefer that than it like distort the image. But but then again, I'm, I'm not a visual snob. You know, I'm, I'm not anal about this stuff, so I don't get upset about it. But but that is definitely my preference. I think the thing that that's most peculiar. And maybe this is a maybe this is a, a problem that well in fact definitely this is a problem that's gone away with modern TV. You know the, the, this stuff that was shot in standard definition when they HD it up. I mean it just inevitably, you know, just like you know the the makeup is wrong. It, 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 it's so apparent. You know, you know the men look. I mean the women look like almost look like bloody clowns. You know the the, the makeup is so apparent. And the, and the men aren't much mm. aren't much better, um, so that you know that, that that's a bit distracting. But I don't know, I'm not sure. I, I, as with video games, I don't know. Visual fidelity just doesn't it doesn't upset me enough for me to give a damn, particularly about stuff like HD. You know, you, you've got HD and 4K. 
get stuffed. Isn't it just like Sanyo and Sony and Samsung and LG just trying to sell more televisions to suckers? Well, what talking about being a visual snob, what I chat, what I want is having paid money, I want the chance to watch the thing that the director told the cameraman to shoot. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I want to watch yeah. that thing, um, <laughs> not something that a restoration committee decided that I was going to watch instead. Or, yeah. um, so, I, I mean, as long as I can watch the fucking thing that the director stood there and told the cameraman, frame that and shoot that, and told the lighting director, put that light there and point it at that thing. As long as I can watch that, I'm happy. There you go, Doc. There you go. I recommend you not you not go back and watch um, The Phantom Menace anytime soon, because I, I think George Lucas has had his grubby little mitts all over it. So be careful. I've got no intention of watching the Phantom Menace ever again, ever under any circumstances. <laughs> good for you, Doc. I still want those two hours of my life back. Yeah, good for you. Don't forget, guys, you can contact us by email at differentdocsos at gmail.com. Uh, you can get in touch with us on Twitter at SOS Different. Let's get on with the show. Jenkins? Watch yeah. for the wings there. Five rounds rapid. Welcome to part two of the show, which we call Five Rounds Rapid. Here, we're just going to throw out two or three topics each and have a little bit of a chinwag. But before that, a few details. Um, of course, today's story, as you'll know, because you chose to download this episode and then press the button, Daya, um, is Attack of the Cybermen. Um, written by Paula Moore, apparently. More on this later, of course. Um, directed by an individual called Matthew Robinson. He's worked on pretty much everything, as far as I can tell. Everything on British TV, anyway. Howard's Way, Bergerac, Biker Grove, EastEnders, to name but a few. Uh, in the who Universe. What a horrible word. Um, he also uh, directed. Was it was it the previous season? Resurrection. It was, wasn't it? It was season twenty one, wasn't it? Resurrection of the Daleks. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. So he also directed Resurrection of the Daleks. Music by Malcolm Clark. Now this this is quite interesting to me. Malcolm Clark um, composed the. I mean, in quotes, incidental music from the Sea Devils, um, and then. When Dudley Simpson was unceremoniously fired by John Nathan Turner, he was brought back into the fold and he worked on Earthshock, Enlightenment, Resurrection of the Daleks, Twin Dilemma and Terror of the Vervoid. So he was called upon reasonably frequently. Cast members of note outside, obviously, Colin and Nicola. Um, character called Lytton uh, by the Utterly excellent Maurice Colburn. Griffiths by the equally excellent Brian Glover. Russell played by Terry Malloy. Now, is that Terry Malloy of Davros fame, Doc? Yes, it is. Yeah, that's, how that's, about that? That's what, that's what Davros looks like without without a bag over his head. How about that? And that's about it, really, for the main. I, I suppose we've got Stratton played by Jonathan David and Bates played by Michael Atwell. Um I'll start, Doc, if you don't mind. Um, a really simple question. Does anybody understand what the fuck is going on in this plot? Um, there are obviously two ways you can have a plot that's difficult to understand. 
Um, we talked about this when we were discussing Fort of Doomsday. Not that Fort of Doomsday has a plot that's difficult to understand. Mm. Kinder has a plot that's difficult to understand in a good way. Yeah. Um, and will keep you on your intellectual toes 35 years later. And, you know, a bit like Ulysses or something. It, it, it'll be a lifetime companion for you. And you, you can keep coming back to it and spotting new things all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's this. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't want to spend too much time harshing on um, the fact that uh, I think the method of writing the script was to assemble a script that made sense, um, cut it all up into um, like one line strips as if you're assembling a ransom note, put them in a black plastic bag, shake them all up, pull them out at random and and gum them back onto some sheets of paper again. What's the what's the name of the Beatles song that was allegedly kind of uh, constructed in that way, where they, they kind of wrote the song and then got, kind of got the tape out of the out of the spool, chopped it up, and then and then like sellotaped it back together? Revolution Number Nine, which I believe is on what people call the White Album, but oh, um, if you're a snob, if you're a snob, you're supposed to call the Beatles. Fair enough. Yeah, but, but of course, we, we everybody knows it as the White Album. Yeah, yeah. A similar methodology was employed here with the script, surely. sort of three takes on this. First of all, I'm going to explain um, what I think the plot is supposed to be about. Mm. Second, I'm going to explain what I think Eric Saywood was really doing. Um, and then I'm going to come to a conclusion. As far as I can see, there are some Cybermen left over from the invasion that took place in 1966 or 1975, depending on who you believe, in sure. the invasion. They didn't get tidied up properly, and they're still wandering around the sewers making some plans. These are Cybermen from Telos. Um, the Cybermen still, who are still on Telos, who are in contact with the party still stranded on Earth, are aware of the fact that the impending destruction of Mondas is about to happen in the year 1986. Um, they instruct the Cybermen on Earth to do something to halt the impending destruction of Mondas. Um, Right. I'm going to stop there because Mm -hmm. nothing I have said makes a lick of sense. (laughs) None of it makes sense whatsoever. Mm. Um, I mean, let's let's start um, in full-on sci-fi nerd mode um, and pick apart what's wrong with that plot. The Cybermen are on Telos because they were disabused of their original home planet, Mondas. That's the reason they relocated there. Uh If the Cybermen do something to stop Mondas from being destroyed, they'll have no compelling reason to move to Telos. They'll have no compelling reason to launch the invasion against Earth in 1966. um, And you'll have a grandfather paradox. Mm. So that's the biggest sci-fi nerd problem with the plot. The second biggest sci-fi nerd problem with the plot, I haven't even started talking about real critical theory yet. I've just started talking in sci-fi nerd scum language. <laughs> the second big sci-fi nerd scum problem with the plot is that um, for the Cybermen to have colonized Telos before Mondas had broken up um, and to be communicating with 
Earth in 1986, at some point in the past of Telos, we presume, or the past of Mondas, who knows, would require some form of time travel, which the Cybermen infamously don't possess and would mm -hmm. like very much. But, but um, the, um, uh, the well of convenience comes to our rescue by having a minor character say, a time craft landed on Telos and the Cybermen were able to, were, um, were able to capture it. Sure. A bit of uh, Dus Ex Machina. Um, can, can we believe? Um, yeah. Except um, nothing is ever made of this. The Cybermen do not do any meaningful time travel using their newly captured time vessel at all. Um, instead, they cook up this ridiculously complicated plot to get the Doctor's interest to get him to go down into the sewers to capture him and get hold of his TARDIS so they can go back to Telos in the past and do something that will do something. And, and the, the, the whole plot is such a monstrous clusterfuck. <laughs> now, do, um, do you think this is, do, do you think this, the, the, the problem with the plot, do you think this ties in to the, the controversy is too strong a word, but the, the, you know, the, the, the differing accounts of the authorship of the story, um, because it's credited to Paula Moore, but nobody really believes that that person exists, do they? Well, Paula Moore was um, Eric Stowood's life partner at the time, I believe. Well, let me tell you what, what it says on Wikipedia, if we can believe this font of all knowledge. Um, yeah. Because on the attack of the Sidemen page, they, they actually have a section called authorship. I'm going to read it. I'm going to read it in full, if, if you don't mind. Um, the serial is credited to Paula Moore, an alias for Paula Woolsey. Um, now, I looked up Paula Woolsey thinking, well, who, who be she? Um, she has one credit on IMDb, which is this story. Um, several separate accounts of a differing versions of, of who actually authored the story. Most accounts agree that series fan and continuity advisor Ian Levine suggested a number of plot elements. At one extreme, it is suggested that the story was authored by series script editor Eric Saywood, with or without substantial input by Levine, with Woolsey only acting as the story's author to prevent problems with the Writers Guild of Great Britain, who objected to script editors editing their own scripts. Alternatively, it is suggested that Woolsey originated the story, but that Saywood heavily rewrote it in his capacity as script editor. Levine claims that Saywood wrote the dialogue to Levine's story and plot, and that Woolsey did, in quotes, did not write one single word of that script, end quote. In a 2004 interview with Doctor Who magazine, Saywood responded that he effectively wrote the script himself, incorporating Levine's story outline with a, quote, minor contribution, end quote, from Woolsey. So, uh, you know, much confusion going on here, but it seems that Levine was involved somewhere down the line. Eric Saywood was certainly involved. And then Paula Woolsey either was or was not involved. So, um, full confession here, um, as part of this project, I try not to um, effectively make use of recent research. Uh, what I'm trying to do from my side is to reflect Doctor Who as I experienced it. Um, mm -hmm. For a lot of Doctor Who, um, I was too young to have experienced it the first time it was on telly. Um, so I've got no choice but to go to secondary sources. Where I have the primary sources, so obviously I was buying Doctor Who magazine each month when this came out. Yeah. Um, and I was watching every interview that cropped up on television. So um, all of the stuff that's come to light recently, um, I pretty much know nothing about. Sure. I'm having a lot of fun with these parts of Doctor Who that I was watching. Um, 
and I kind of don't want to, I want to say contaminate myself with the truth. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, because as in this case, for instance, it's becoming abundantly clear to me from what you just said that um, still no one's willing or able to state what the truth actually is. The business of it being half Eric Saywood and half Ian Levine um, makes a great deal of sense mm. because the uh, the plot is um, the polite expression, um, and I had uh, and, and I, I can't stress the polite expression for this kind of thing is fan wank. Well, I mean, uh, that's one of my notes actually. Literally, one of my notes. So let me find it. Um, why is the opening set in Potter's Lane? Is this just fanboy wankery, or is there any logic? Question mark. So yeah, I've dropped that expression to my notes. Yeah. So generally speaking, when people see obtruse references to the past that have no place in anything that's happened that's actually happening on television at the moment, um, particularly well in the John Nathan Turner era, um, people who were there and who know the facts um, generally suspect Ian Levine's hand in something like that happening. Yeah. Um, yeah. Never met Ian Levine. Um, the only impressions I've ever received about the man as a human being are from people who are extremely embittered towards him. Right. Um, so, they're, so therefore, they're, you know, not kind of unreliable sources by, by definition. Yeah. Um, I mean, uh, Ian Levine has been like such a whipping boy for Doctor who found them for such a long time um it's lacking any original sources of my own um or like even having seen the man in the flesh uh, or spoken to him uh, let alone being able to get any reliable facts about what he may or may not have done sure um it's 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 not somewhere i'm willing to go at the moment but except to say that there seems a consensus that whenever one sees egregious fan wank in 80s Doctor Who, Ian Levine is at the bottom of it somewhere. Yeah. Um, I, can yeah. Say, I, I can say that, um, stating that it's opinion that I've heard, and I can say that without slighting Ian Levine personally. Yeah, um, d- 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 let's move and, on. And I think, it, uh, I, I, th- I think we have plenty of evidence in sci-fi about the perils of... of allowing fans in anywhere near the fucking writing room you know you only have to look at something like alien 4 alien resurrection i think it's called and i'd, I'd also throw in like modern trek like star trek discovery they're all star trek fanboys and it's absolute fucking shit so you know for my money <laughs> keep, for my money just keep the keep the fans out of the writing room that's what i say yeah definitely um so um as far as eric said um, Eric Saywood's influence looms very, very large over the story to me um, in two ways. I've had a, I won't say a troubled relationship with Eric Saywood because once again he's a person I never met and he's now passed on so I'm not going to. Mm-hmm. Um, but I went from when I was a teenage boy liking his stuff and then turning against it very, very badly and then gaining a grudging appreciation for what I thought he was trying to do if in a flawed way. And then recently, his vision has almost sort of crystallized before my eyes. And we'll get into that when we talk about contemporary history and politics later on. Um, The Eric Saywoody bits of this are, the most identifiable ones, obviously, are the tough guy moments. Um, Those are the things that people associate with anything that Eric Saywood ever had anything to do with. Yes. Um, Oh, my goodness, there are... 
Oh, sorry, Doc. He, he kind of brought the, you know, the, the grit, didn't he, to who? Yeah. Um, and there's there's obviously a lot of testosterone oozing out of this mm. story now, isn't there? Mm. Yeah, for sure. The thing I only got quite recently is what a witty script editor Eric Saywood can be. And I don't mean he puts witticisms into his scripts. What I mean is he uses the process of script editing in a very witty way. And I think the plot of Attack of the Cybermen um, is a satire, pastiche, piss take of the plots that the Cybermen come up with in every single story therein, with the possible exception of the first two. Everything the Cybermen do is stupidly overcomplicated compared to what it is that they're trying to achieve. Sure. Um, so they, they, they kind of over-engineer their plans. Well, I love the wheel in space. I know it's not yeah. a big favourite, but um, I think the wheel in space is an early entry in the what I'm going to call the existential loneliness of space travel genre. Uh-huh. Sure. Um, and I... I I love it for a whole bunch of, and I, you know, it's 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 got David Whitaker's name at the beginning of it. Of course, I'm going to love it. And we we, we we talked about that concept uh, in the Ark in Space episode, didn't we? Yes, we did. Yeah, and it, it was when the Ark in Space was broadcast. It was kind of a thing in mass media, but when the Wheel in Space was broadcast, that was still kind of the optimistic, future-looking era of science fiction. Mm. But the plot that the Cybermen have. What they do is they intercept a small freighter that may or may not be on its way to the wheel. Because the people on the wheel in space aren't expecting this freighter to turn up. Mm-hmm. The Cybermen abduct this freighter, presumably murder the crew, um, put an unreliable computer on board to drive it somewhere. Um, despite the fact the place they're going to, they know perfectly well, is armed to the teeth and will likely shoot any, any unidentified object that shows up in its airspace. Mm-hmm. The Cybermen know this. Because the reason they want this particular space station is because it's armed to the teeth and it has a weapon that they can use to threaten Earth. Okay, yeah. Um, now, I, 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 I hope we, that they brought along their uh, bassoon in order to go do 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 as they were approaching. Doc, tell me that's true. absolutely is true um, it also has and when you watch this you'll realize it has the most absurdly literal interpretation of the phrase spacewalk you have ever seen in your life <laughs> i'm looking forward to it already yeah um i, I mean I, I i love it to bits i think mm. it's great um for its silly moments and, and and for its very serious moments yeah but my point is uh, we already know that cybermen possess a weapon capable of destroying earth but they mm. go through this ridiculously overcomplicated plot to get another one um and it's never quite um and you know it, it's it's never explained why 
Cybermen want to invade Earth. Then when it want, then when it turns out they can't invade Earth, they're going to destroy it. And just Cybermen, you're supposed to be creatures of merciless logic. Will you make your minds up about what it is that you want to do and how you're going to do it, please? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Stop being so flaky, Cybermen, for Christ's sake. And effectively, this script is the Doctor Who script editor's version of a Cyberman plan. Mm. Um. Oh, the Cybermen, of course, and I, I, I always like imagining this. The Cybermen, of course, have this thing called the Cyber Planner, which is, I think it's supposed to be a melding of thousands of presumably genius human brains in a huge glass ball that glows from the inside, and it, it cooks up all their plans for them. Um, so I sort of have this image, because I don't even know what Eric Saywood looks like, and I, I had this image that in Eric Saywood's office there was a desk-sized version of one of these, and that Eric Saywood was not a human being, um, but um, he would he would plan Doctor Who in a way that seemed good and logical to him. <laughs> um, I, I am listening, Doc. I'm, I'm just I'm, I'm I'm desperately googling a picture of Eric Saywood so so I can give you a description. Um, so you, you, you're going to spoil it now, but yeah, I've got this idea that Eric Saywood is actually like a, a, a collective intelligence um, in a glass tank that writes Doctor Who scripts um, that have things in that he likes, mm. but the component of them that has to make sense gets left. And um, Earthshock is another fantastic example of this. If if someone can explain, if someone can watch Earthshock and explain what the Cybermen were trying to do how they were trying to do it and what the end result was supposed to be and why couldn't why they couldn't have used one of their own heavily armed spaceships it it, it, it makes no sense um <laughs> so effectively you've got a story which is about a plan the cybermen have made but the story itself is constructed in the manner of a plan the cybermen would make and that's what we're watching yeah um watching the story is what it must be like to be in the inside of a cyberman's head now, Doc, we've been talking now in five in, in five rounds rapid for about fifteen minutes, and we're still on point one. Have you got a, have you got another point to make? Um, yeah, um, I want to talk about the Gothic in Go Doctor Who. Um, I want to talk about a specific branch of Gothic, which, um, as most people know, is an ethic which emphasises the forcing together of ugliness and beauty. Right. Specifically, the ugliness and beauty I want to talk about is beautiful women in ugly clothes. And very, very, very specifically, I want to talk about who the fuck thought that Nicola Bryant or anyone else on Earth looked good in that outfit. I, I mean, what, what was anyone thinking, seriously? Mm, mm. Well, I mean, I think they just, you know, found the smallest possible item of clothing that they could possibly squeeze her into. You know, to 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 make the dads happy, basically, it 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 it's a, it's a terrible decision. I mean, she's she's like, t ironically, she's tottering around in Totter's Lane. Um, you yeah. know, and 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 and, and, and you know, this, this is no slight on Nicola Bryant because I I, I love Nicola. I, I like the character of Perry, but I'm, I'm I'm fully on board with you here, Doc. What on earth were the costume designers thinking? It just makes no sense. The costume designer is a woman. Um, mm -hmm. I can't imagine that i can't imagine that whoever designed quote unquote designed that costume isn't yeah. someone who hates women yeah um yeah i mean that that costume is the product of someone who hates women and thinks they're all whores and wants to make sure they look that way 
I, don't, um, I mean, I don't, why in the name? I'd, of... I'd, fl I'd flip that a little bit, Doc. Per, you know, I'd, I'd, I would say that's a costume designer that thinks that you know all men are so cretinous that the only thing that they want to see on television is a, is a poor woman in clear discomfort. Um, you know, in in, in skin tight clothing. You know, just 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 to get a fucking boner on a Saturday night, a Saturday afternoon, or whatever. Or you know, or, or whenever it was broadcast. So you know, I'd, I'd kind of flip the flip the genders that the person hates personally, Doc. I mean, the, the, there are ways of there are ways there are ways of doing sexy clothing, and there are ways of doing provocative clothing. Mm -hmm. um, in in Resurrection of the Daleks, um, people got alarmed by the fact that Janet Fielding's outfit allegedly makes her look like a cheap tart, right. um, and those people were obviously not paying attention to contemporary fashion. Because if you say that, then the spectre of Vivian Westwood will pop up cackling in your ear and going, and what's wrong looking? What's wrong with looking like a cheap tart then? <laughs> um, if you'd gone to see Susie and the Banshees or possibly The Cure in 1984, um, you would have seen several dozen women dressed exactly like that. Yeah. Um, and you called any of them a cheap tart, you'd have probably been picking up your bollocks with a spoon. Mm. Um, so, I mean, there are ways of doing sexually provocative clothing um, and there are ways of, of dressing beautiful women. Um, but I mean, that thing is, whatever it is that she's wearing, it's clearly made, it, it's clearly picked out to make her feel uncomfortable in the weather she has to go on location in, yes. um, not be able yes. to run, not be able to walk very well. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, um, the overall effect is, um, I've mentioned before, uh, I've got a great deal of affection for Nicola Bryant. Um, I, I'm going to stick my neck out here. Um, if she had been around 15 years previously, she would have been considered one of the great beauties of her age. Yeah, absolutely. Unfortunately, she was, she was about in the mid-1980s when everything was aerobics and cocaine mm -hmm. and her sort of slightly overripe um, beauty and her sort of dark skin, slightly dark skin, um, and her sort of healthy BMI were not particularly fashionable. Um, if she'd have been around in 1970, um, she could have like very, very easily gone alongside uh, Lena Romay or Soledad Miranda or Valerie Leon mm -hmm. um, or um, any of those beautiful women in the days when beautiful women looked like women. You know, for you know, and you know, maybe even more famously, you know, somebody like uh, Sophia Loren, even you know. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, sure. a, 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 slight, a slightly smaller, budgeted, less famous version. Uh -huh. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, if if fashions had been different, um, she should have been right up there. Mm. Um, but you, you, I but, mean, the, the costume is so ludicrous. You can you can see it's so tight. You know, you you can see the bra straps on her back like cutting into her flesh and i'm just looking at it thinking yes. it might, that, that must have been so awful so awful for you and she has to go on location in like february by the look of it yeah yeah we spend several hours standing around i mean the the only possible balance you can come to is that colin baker if anything looks even more stupid uh, and i, I I know people are critical of the aesthetic of the 80s in general, um, and it, it, it's occasionally referred to as the, the, the decade that style forgot. Uh, but I mean, all decades have their fair share of fashion crimes. Um, people living in 2021 um, should 
probably think twice about criticizing any decade in history for its clothing. Sure. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. I mean, yeah. No, nothing about those clothes that those people wear is even particularly redolent of the age. No, um, no you're right. Uh, talking about Perry Doc, um, I, I'm, I'm going to move on to my, my second point here. The Doctor's lack of concern for Perry at times is is, is really really distressing I, I didn't like it at all i mean the one that really stood out for me but it, it, it wasn't the only example i don't think a cyberman walks in into the in, into the the tardis control room i think it is console room mm-hmm. points at perry and says out of the blue you will come with me um the doctor doesn't ask why he doesn't put up any kind of resistance. Perry's obviously terrified. How do we explain this behaviour? Well, it's <clears throat> we're getting into the very, very weird territory of people's conception of Colin Baker's doctor. Yeah. Um, there's an even creepier example of exactly what you're talking about in Revelation of the Daleks. Not to put to fi- not not to put too fine a point on it. There's a scene where the Doctor offers Perry up for rape. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Mr. Joe Bell, um, the sort of uh, the person in charge of, of, of Tranquil Repose, um, is asking a few too many searching questions around the doctor and, my, and, and maybe getting close to learning things the doctor doesn't want him to know. Um, and um, he basically tells Perry to go off with him, um, even though there's every sign that he's going to molest her. Right. Um, mm-hmm. and and it's, um, I suspect another story I haven't watched for a long time, but I suspect when we get to Vengeance on Barros, you, you, you're, you're going to find multiple moments of ick like that. Yeah. Um, yeah, it, it's it's really, really disturbing and not in a good way either. I don't, um, I don't think it's I, I don't think it's the fact that she's that it's a female companion that's bothersome to me, really, Doc. You know, because generally speaking, I, I, I don't really care what's kind of flapping around between somebody's legs. Um, it, it's the fact that it, it, it's his companion, and in, he just in no way comes to her defence. I find it most peculiar. This is almost prefigured, and I, I, this is one of the things I meant to bring up when we were talking about Fort of Doomsday. Um, the, even in Fort of Doomsday, the Doctor seems to have no concept of duty of care um, over the children he's taking care of. Um, because I mean, like, let's be honest about this. The um, in that first piece of Everson story, two out of three of the people the Doctor is taking care of are children. Yes. Um, and you know, let's not misunderstand that. They have the mentality of children. They act like children. They certainly behave like fucking children. Mm-hmm. Um, the Doctor does nothing to intervene when um, Tegan bullies Adric. You know, you you might mightn't you. Um, think, for instance, that you're watching a television programme that was produced by a man that had no friends and had really serious um, difficulties with communicating with people. Sure. (laughs) Very pointed, Doc. Very pointed. Have have, have you got a second point, Doc, before we move on to uh, the next part of the show? Yeah. Um, Right. Let's talk about um, boiling cauldrons of working-class rage. Um from Albert Finney to Ray Winstone. Um, isn't Michael Atwell fucking fantastic in this story? If you had to pull out um, a five-minute clip 
to explain to a foreign media studies student in the context of UK visual media what is meant by a boiling cauldron of working class rage. You might think about a clip of Richard Burton from Look Back in Anger. You might think about um, Yossi Hughes from Boys from the Black Stuff. Oh, yes. Um, like I said a minute or two ago, um, you might think about Ray Winstone from Nil by Mouth. Sure. But for my mind, um, that two or three minute sequence uh, where, and where um, Michael Atwell is just violently and verbally and emotionally abusing um, the poor chap who he's browbeaten into escaping with him against mm -hmm. his own will. Um, where, where the other chap says, this is not the time or place to argue. And he goes, argue, I could kill you, you moron. <laughs> yeah, the, you're talking about the character Stratton um, there, aren't you, Doc? Which is Jonathan David, the name of the actor is Jonathan yeah. David. And for my money, what do you think about this, Doc? I thought that those two characters were really... I was going to bring this up in, the, you know, when we talk about like foreshadowing and stuff. For my money, that those guys really reminded me of um, like almost like forerunners for Sabalon Glitz and Dibba from 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 I think from the next season, isn't it? I think from season twenty three, Robert Holmes creations, I believe. Yeah. Well, yeah. Um, Glitz and Dibba are. Um, I think they're slightly rote examples, but uh, everyone. One of the things that everyone knows about Robert Holmes is that the, he 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 always has a tragic comic double act. Mm -hmm. um, so we mentioned th this is the second time in two episodes we're mentioning Tom Stoppard. Um, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. Um, was a tremendously influential play when it came out, and I think Robert Holmes was greatly influenced by this idea of let's take the big story, but tell the huge events from the point of view of two completely inconsequential characters mm. who are just being buffeted about by the huge historical events that the main characters are orchestrating. Sure. So you, you, get, a, you get an embryonic... The first fully-fledged version of this you get is Blood Axe and Iron Grom in The Time Warrior. Sure, and yes. Then you get, I think it's Lyset, yes. you get Lyset and Rogan in the Ark in Space. Mm -hmm. um, moving forward... I, um, many people think this is the best example, and who am I to disagree? You get um, Garon and Unstoff in the Rybos experiment. Good. You've skipped over Talons uh, of Wayne Chiang there, with, um, Yeah, of course, the Jago and Lightfoot in mm. the Talons of Wayne Chiang. Mm -hmm. So the, the, they're, they're always referred to as um, like the Robert Holmes comedy double act. Yeah. Um, I choose to think of them as like Robert Holmes, Rosencrantz, and Guildenstern. Mm -hmm. um, so that they're. The, the, they're little characters, they're minor characters. They don't get to do much. Um, and effectively, if you want to talk in terms of objectification, they're the people to whom the story happens, as opposed to the people who do who, who, who make the story happen. Yeah, because I think for, you know, for um, people that don't get the reference, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, correct me if I'm wrong here, Doc, Tom Stoppard wrote the play, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, based on two minor characters from Hamlet, I believe. That's right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and, and so he kind of fleshed out their story because they were just kind of bit part players in the, in obviously in the, the very, very famous Shakespeare play. And so he thought it would be a great idea to you know, just kind of round them out effectively. And specifically retell the story from the mm. point of view of a couple of fucking nobodies. Uh, so he, he, he kind of got all Rash, Rashomon on our ass at the same time. Um, yeah, very much so. Yeah. Um, and, of course, 
the point being that we know the we, we know the end of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, not just from the title, because um, obviously what, what happens to them in Hamlet is that yeah. they, they, they go away, do something. They're completely forgotten about. And in one throwaway line, like, oh, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. Mm. Uh, you know, <laughs> but, but that's... That's okay. They, they, they weren't important. They, they weren't princes and dukes like us. They're, they're, they're completely unimportant. They were red shirts. Yes. Yeah. Yes, very much so. Um, does Star Trek ever do any from the red shirts? It does, doesn't it? it, it isn't one called Lower Decks? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's not specifically red shirts, but yes, Lower Decks is the episode that is kind of, you know, from the perspective of the underlings, really, you know, the people that aren't bridge officers. Yeah. Yeah, you know, so, so you know, just like the rank and file, the rank and file. Um, I, I think they're all cadets, actually. I, I think they're all well. They're either all cadets or they're just kind of newly qualified from Starfleet, and it's kind of their first tour of duty, as it were. So you know, they're very wet behind the ears. Yeah, yeah. Um, I seem to remember that the, um, the director has a lot of fun, like portraying Riker as this um, like brutal, tyrannical, despotic figure who everyone's terrified of. That's right. No, you're absolutely, you're absolutely correct. Yes. It's kind of, you know, seeing, you know, you know, lovable rogue Riker, you know, our hero suddenly through the eyes of, you know, one of, one of his underlings, you know, just that different perspective. It's, it's, it's an absolutely cracking episode. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's what Robert Holmes does a lot. And Stratton and Bates, um, are like, um, I won't say, I'm not going to say Eric say we're trying to do that. I, I, I don't think I'm pushing the boat out a lot by saying that I think Eric say would idolise Robert Holmes. Mm. Um, and I'm not even saying it's a bad thing. I idolise Robert Holmes. Sure, I was going to say, yeah, who doesn't? You know, if, if, you, if you like um, who, if you like who, who doesn't idolise Robert Holmes? Yeah. You know, up there. You know, Whitaker, um, Holmes, surely, Terence Dix, you know. Definitely, and uh, if you um, if you're going to copy, then copy from the best, right? Yeah, mm -hmm. correct. Doc, are you done? I am. Yes. Let's move on to the next part. Commander, you are authorized to use the mind probe. What? No, not the mind probe. Welcome to part three of the show, which we call Not the Mind Probe. Here we're going to talk about other stories that were influenced by this, other stories that influenced, and general things that were happening in the world. Um, at least that's the idea, but obviously we normally go off on wild tangents. Uh, let's ground it. What was happening in the world at the time? Uh, broadcast dates for this particular story, obviously two episodes, 5th of January and the 12th of January, 1985. Uh, US movies released... Around the time of note, we've got a couple of slasher films that are worth a look. Uh, the Mutilator, which is pretty good, and Too Scared to Scream. What a fantastic title! Well, you know, I mean, it, and, and, if that's, and if that's not a German thrash band, you, you, can, you, can, shoot, you can shoot me in the head and call me Charlie. Um, <laughs> we've got The Mutilator, and another one called Too Scared to Scream, which I'm not familiar with, with at all. Uh, but the, 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 the most notable has to be... Um, the Coen Brothers' first feature film, which is, of course, Blood Simple. If you haven't seen that, guys, go and check that out. It's really, really good. Um, UK number ones, only one, and it's a biggie. It was Band-Aid. Do they know it's Christmas? I've got nothing funny to say about that, Doc, so I'm going to let the music speak for itself right now. It's Christmas time. 
there's no need to be afraid At Christmas time We let in light and we vanish it Come on then, Doc. Give, give me your thoughts. What's happening in the world? Um, I can tell you one very specific thing that was happening because my VHS videotape of this, um, it was the year my parents got a VHS machine. Um, it might even have been the very month they got a VHS machine. We weren't very good at setting the timer and schedules weren't reliable. So mm. you typically start everything 15 minutes early. So mm -hmm. I get a big chunk of BBC News and Sport at the beginning of my VHS tape. <laughs> Um, not that this is particularly relevant to the story, but um, the headline item was a lady named Kim Cotton um, who had agreed to be a surrogate mother for a childless couple and upon the birth of her daughter um, had asserted her rights to parenthood and th there was a, uh, a, a, a literal, th th there was, there was a custody. Um, I think the, um, the point of law at that point was should it be considered a, a custody battle or an abduction battle? Is this in, in, in the UK um, or the US, Doc? In the UK. Right. Um, I think that kind of thing was... Uh, that There were legal precedents in the US for how that kind of thing worked. Sure. Uh, already. Sure. I don't know why, but, but when, when, was... when I think of surrogacy, my mind automatically goes across the Atlantic. I don't know why that is. I don't either. Mm. Um, it'll be an interesting subject to discuss sometime, but um, I thought I'd bring it up because that's what happened to be the headline item on the news immediately before episode one of Attack of the Cybermen was broadcast. Mm -hmm. um, to find some points of relevance, I think we're going to have to throw our net a little bit wider. So um, I want you to think about uh, a couple of different things. The scenes on Telos with, for instance, Stratton and Bates and yep. the other slave workers, I think I like this kind of thing better than having it explained to me. There's a concentration camp, labour camp kind of thing on the surface of Telos, which has been guarded by Cybermen. Um, who are the workers? Um, where, where where have they come from? Um, because they are they're human, aren't they? They're kind of humanoid, at least. Um, yeah. And as far as we know, the only inhabitants of Telos at this point are the Cryons. They're the indigenous inhabitants who most people believe are ex extinct and only Lutton knows differently. Okay, yeah. So so where do these humanoid slave force come from? I mean, are they being shipped in from elsewhere? Well, they're, they're, they're partly cybernetic. And what I'm curious is, um, are they have, have they been slightly modified to make them more efficient manual workers? Or are they like failures in the conversion program? So... Mm -hmm. so I can imagine that um, someone like Stratton, the, the, the conditioning, the thing they do to your head to turn you into a Cyberman wouldn't have worked properly on him. Right. Um, so, presumably, they're... Um, what, because he's too thick, or...? Um, because he's such a boiling cauldron of working-class rage, and... No, um, that's, the, uh, the, 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 that's Bates, the, um, isn't it? The Bates, Bates is Michael Atwell. I think, we, I think we're confusing our, our character names here, aren't we? Um, honestly, everything else about the plot, um, the guy, uh, the shouty guy with the widow's peak. 
tiny side note here uh, while we're talking about Stratton and Bates, and now we've, we've, we've established that um, it's, it, it's, it's Bates who's the smart, angry one. Um, we have a scene, don't we, um, where an overbearing, emotionally abusive, violent man um, makes his timid, dominated companion dress up in a stupid costume. Mm -hmm. Where else in this story have we seen that dynamic? Um, in this story, yeah. Um, so you're talking? Are you talking about the the, the the like the Doctor and Perry's costumes? Yes, absolutely. There we go. Yeah, I, I, for, for a terrifying moment there, I, I thought my I thought I thought I was being as as, as thick as Stratton. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so I mean, my, my assumption is that um, because Bates is such a boiling cauldron of working class rage and mm -hmm. the man's lies don't work on him. Sure. Um, you know, he, he's, 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 he's seen too much and he's, um, he can see through it all um, he, and he, he, he won't get fooled again. Yeah. Then the conditioning doesn't work properly on him and, and presumably on some other people. And so presumably they get downgraded towards expendable labour. The other thing that Eric Sayward is trying to do here is a Malcolm Hulk style um, multiple pairings. So mm -hmm. we've, we've just alluded to Doctor and Perry and Stratton and Bates, and then we've got the third one, um, Lytton and Griffiths. Yes. And they will stand some talking about because um, I I think they should have got their own. I, I think they should have got their own sitcom. Do, do you think, Doc, that, that, that this is the uh, you know the, the the finest cast? assembled in classic who in the classic who era what do we think about that um i mean you've got to it you've got to think hard before anything gives it any really stiff competence i mean it <clears throat> to have assembled a, a, a get cast um that's practically flawless like that mm. um i'm struggling you know you know you know Think what you want about um, the cryon, the, the, the realization of the cryons, the execution of them. But you know, you know, even getting the likes of Sarah Green and Faith Brown. You know, we've got Maurice Colburn, Brian Glover, Terry Malloy. We already mentioned Michael Atwell, who's absolutely great. It's 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 not bad, is it? No, it's fantastic. Um, since since you brought it up, we'll we'll, we'll talk about the crowns for a bit as well. Mm. I mean, once again, we're into some more really really bad costumes. Yeah. Um, I have kind of got the hang of watching the story now and no sniggering at the back, but imagining that those costumes aren't there um, or at uh -huh. least imagining that the, uh, the stupid headpieces aren't there. Yeah. Um, because I think, um, I always try to imagine that they got the same lady to do the makeup who did Judith Paris's makeup in um, The Hand of Fear. Oh, you're talking about, well, it, well, yes, if, what, 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 what's the character name? I, I know exactly the character you're talking about. I just can't put my finger on the name. It's, 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 um, it's Lady Eldrad, um, Eldrad, as opposed to boring guy Eldrad. Yes, Eldrad um, must live. Sarah, listen to me. No, there's nothing more to say because Eldrad must live. What did she say? Eldrad must live. Eldrad must live. Who is Eldrad, Sarah? Some assassin. Sarah, who is Eldrad? What does he want? Eldrad must live. Eldrad, the creator, the savior. Sarah, what does he want? Eldrad must live. Eldrad must live. Sarah, 
Yeah, I mean, Judith Paris's performance and costume um, in The Hand of Fear is probably the single best example of the really weird and really alien, but really sexy at the same time mm. Um, mm. that I think I've ever seen. And that the same kind of imagination and leaning on that aesthetic, um, I th think they could have done something really special with the crowns. I think they could, uh, um, in, instead of which they have like shitty vacuum formed masks. Yes. Um, it, it all looks very anime and, to me. You know, do, you, you mentioned Eldrad and the Cryons, you know, and they, they always put me in mind of, um, you know, kind of anime characters, you know, a lot of villainous anime characters for some reason. Yeah. Um, and uh, that makes perfect sense because it's, um, it's making something superficially human look so alien that yeah. it doesn't make much sense. You wouldn't count on getting away with it outside the outside of something as outro as Japanese animation. Sure, I don't think. Mm -hmm. So uh, I I know exactly what you're talking about. Mm. I I really really wish they had put some more effort into just like realizing the crowns. Yes, uh, because once you once you can get past the awful costumes, mm. um, all of their performances are really really good. I, I, I think so. You, you, you know, they're, they're quite a theme. I mean, I think the costumes are trying are trying to reflect this, but but they're but they're so poorly lit that it bails disastrously. You know, that because they're meant to be, you know, these kind of elfin, ethereal, you know, almost translucent, aren't they? You know, I think that's the idea yeah. that you're almost kind of meant to be able to see through them. That you know, that the, 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 like phantom-like creatures, um, just just barely present kind of in our realm, as if they're almost like phasing in and out of our dimension. I don't know, maybe I'm going too far, but that's kind of the impression of, of I, I think that's what they wanted to do rather than even close to what they actually did. Yeah. My take on it was because they're supposed to be creatures that thrive at extremely low temperatures. Yeah. Um, if you've ever yeah. seen, if you've ever seen liquid hydrogen gas, um, vaporizing in temperatures slightly above um, 272 degrees, minus 272 degrees Celsius, mm -hmm. then it, it gives off very dense and very ethereal um, shapes in which you really can see faces and you really can see human figures. Sure. And I, I, I think that was the idea of the script. Um, I don't know who came up with a conception like that and expected somebody to be able to pull it off on a Doctor Who budget. Of course, yeah, um, yeah. Like you know, nowadays post post twenty oh five, yeah, I expect probably the technology exists that you could do convincing cloud of gas creatures mm. like that. Um, but uh, I mean, in nineteen eighty five on videotape, really, um, <laughs> like, um, I still maintain there are many many ways they could have done it better, and I, I'm 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 kind of sad they didn't. Look, we haven't even mentioned the Sweeney or the professionals yet. How's that possible? Um, well, we're sort of saving that for the end. Mm. Um, and once again, this is an example of sort of um, Eric Saywood being Eric Saywood. And he has, there's, there's a whole section in episode one <clears throat> where he permits himself a reverie and he allows himself to forget that he's even anything to do with Doctor Who for about 20 minutes of episode one. <laughs> um, all of the best direction, all of the best 
writing and one-liners, all of the best character interplay, um, all happen in the bits of the story that wants to forget the fact that it's anything to do with Doctor Who. Discuss. Yeah, no, no, you're quite right. Yes, you know, because, you know, the, the, the interplay between... Um, Lytton and Griffith in particular. I mean, there are four of them to begin with, aren't there? So you've got you've got Gri- you've got Lytton, yeah. Griffiths, Russell, and Payne, isn't it? Are the four characters? Russell, of course, being the yes. um, you, you know the 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 undercover copper, um, and that interplay between them is, is absolutely great. And, and and I think you're right. If if somebody if somebody walked in halfway through the episode, didn't know you're watching who. And sat down for a couple of minutes during those moments. They, they would they would assume it, you know this this was, you know, maybe not the Sweeney, but but some derivative of, um, or like some sort of um, that the, there were some quite serious attempts to make proper UK action movies um, yeah, in the early eighties. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it, it comes across as a bit like one of those. We've mentioned this before, and I don't know if this still packs the same punch in 2021, but when the guns come out, it's a truly shocking moment. Because, I mean, um, like suddenly when um, Lytton goes in his holdall and comes out what's very clearly recognisably, uh, very clearly recognisably either an Ingram Mac 10 um, or a IFI um, Micro Uzi, um, and then you get like a big, loving, fetishistic close-up of him screwing the suppressor onto it. Yes. Yes. Um, I've, I've, I've mentioned in a previous episode, I can't remember which one. Oh, in fact, it was the, the Highlanders, I think, wasn't it? When um, I think Ben held a, held a musket to, to, to a character's head. I thought that was, that, yes. that was surprising. But, but I'm, I'm, not as, I'm not as surprised by seeing this in the Colin Baker era. Um, you know, but I think it is more in keeping with the time, um, and that you know they'd already set these characters up to be kind of gangsters, you know, like wide boys. So they are going to, I presume, they are going to be packing heat. So it didn't really shock me quite so much as, as the Highlander moment. That being said, I think it does cause a problem in terms of the, the like the realization on screen, you know, because the first Cybermen that's encountered appears to be kind of easily dispatched by a basic earthbound projectile weapon which I, which, which I found most peculiar i didn't mind the bit where russell kind of stuck his gun in a sideman's face and shot him right in the mouth and that, and that caused serious <laughs> damage because that, that that seems plausible to me but surely this is a cyberman you shouldn't be able to shoot him from 30 miles away once with a fucking with a pistol and, and take him down surely not doc I have an ex- an out-of-universe explanation for this. When you see the Cyberman's base on Earth in the sewers, there's some partially converted humans. Ah. So I think, to keep their numbers up, the Cybermen have been abducting homeless people or sewer company workers. or They've, they've been making sneaky forays into the surface to um, abduct people and convert them. And I think... Um, after the events of the invasion, they've mostly got enough spares lying around to do the conversions, but they probably have to use plastic or plain old steel or aluminium or something to make the shells out of. And those are probably the ones they use for light guard duties. Fair enough. Yeah, I can buy that. I can buy that. Doc, we've got about 20 minutes to go. Uh, should, we, should, we, should we press on to the last part of the show? 
Yes. Overweight under Pardo Museum piece. Uh, welcome to part four of the show, which we call Overweight Underpowered Museum Piece. Here we talk about the production, costumes, effects, direction, etc. And anything else that takes our fancy. Um, Doc, the sewers look absolutely fantastic here. Really well lit. The shadows they use, the use of the curve of the wall, just the general sense of dankness. Um, you know, compared to lots of other aspects of the production here. Every single moment in the sewers, I thought, was fabulous. Talk to me about it. Yeah, it's... Um, the production on this is like the little girl who lives down the lane, isn't it? Mm -hmm. um, when she was good, she was very, very good, and when she was bad, she was horrid. Yeah. And I, it's, I almost can't believe that the same director who pulled off the sewers and... Um, you know, you, you, you get a glimpse of a, a, a lost London... Um, because I imagine all of those bits around Shepherd's Bush and Maida Vale have been yuppified out of existence by now. Sure. I don't imagine any of those streets look like that nowadays. Um, so the, the location stuff looks great to me. Um, the slave camp um, looks really cold and inhospitable, and like a, it looks like a place that's really hostile for human existence. Sure, you're um, right. It, it looks like getting to the end of your work shift um, and getting your bowl of stew or whatever, it, it, it looks like that would be like a survival effort every single day. It, it, it is curious, um, isn't it? You know, how, as you say, the same director, but, but, you know, but then again, you know, budgetary constraints, you know, time constraints, all of these things, I suppose, play against them. We've said this many times already, and we'll say it thousands of times again, particularly when we get to the Graham Williams era, baiting <laughs> you. Um, <laughs> in, what, in what way is it a budgetary restraint to turn the fucking lights down? I know, I, yeah, I, 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 no, you're right. I, I do find that almost unforgivable about particularly 80s who, honestly, stop lighting the studio with the power of a million suns. What, what, why are you doing that? It, it, it makes no sense because all it does, I mean, talk about, uh, you know, HD TV drawing attention to the flaws in the, like, like the makeup of, 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 of the actors, um, turning the lights up. I, I mean, the crayons put that in a, in a dimly lit studio and they would look passable, wouldn't they? Something approaching, you know, if you, if you, if you battle at them, um, with a big, with, with, with a blue filter on a big Klieg light, or if mm. you look them from only one side mm -hmm. um, and let some, uh, uh, got, got a smoke machine and let that float around, um, then, yeah, you, you could you could have something approaching effective costumes there. Sure. Um, but, I mean, turning great big Klieg lights on them um, and, and then um, shooting them in extreme close-up so it's painfully obvious that you can see the actress's own eyes behind the crayon's eyepieces. Yes. Yes. It's, it's really it's, not a good move. It's all very strange. Um, why, Doc, do we have this god-awful comedy music as the gangsters are being introduced? It, you know, the music, to me, was more akin to the scenes like featuring, I don't know, like Bouncer the Dog in Neighbours, getting up to his escapades in, in Ramsey Street, rather than establishing what presumably is meant to be a group of menacing villains. I, mean, I don't yeah, mind the fact that I don't mind the fact that it's kind of overpowering synthesizer, because that's just a, a sign of the time. 
it's the the, the choice of mood that, that I find beyond baffling. It's Malcolm Clark getting a bit clever, clever, isn't it? So mm-hmm. when the TARDIS lands in Totter's Lane, and the piece of music is, I think it's meant to be a pastiche on the theme to Step Turn Sun. Ganger introduced. I think that's supposed to that's supposed to be a pastiche on the theme to the Sweeney. Oh. I actually think that's what it's supposed to be. Oh God! Well, I'll, I'll drop this. I'll drop the, the the theme. I'll drop both themes in here at this point and let people decide. This is the music from Attack of the Cybermen. gentlemen. Inside that building is 10 million pounds in diamonds. Tasty. Very tasty. How long will you need? About half an hour. I'll send these two back to the car. This is a theme to the to the Sweeney. It's not, e- it's not even just that scene, though. You know, that, that kind of comedic ambience to the music continues throughout, you know, to e- even when you've got Cybermen kind of mo- walking down through the sewers, you've got this kind of comedic, bouncy music interspersed with, like, clanking, metallic industrial sounds. It, it, it's a real mess. Um, I'm really interested that you said that. Uh, mm. Honestly, that is a take on the music um, that I had never even thought of before. Mm. When I saw this, when it went live, the um, the music was one of the things that stuck in my head sure. um, most strongly. And then, sure. um, I, I'm, honestly, I'm not just trying to be contrarian, then when I began to hear real industrial music later on, um, I thought, oh, this is like the incidental music to Attack of the Cybermen. Mm-hmm. Um, it's amazing, isn't it, how, how how two people can have such a wildly skewed take on it. Um, mm-hmm. I agree with you that the, the pastiches near the beginning are, are, are a mistake. Yeah. Um, I think the Cybermen walk up and down a bit music um, is actually really effective. Okay. And I'm fascinated. Mm-hmm. That, yeah, 
really interesting that you don't like it. Mm, mm. Um, what do you, what do you think of um, the score the the score for the Sea Devils? Because that's another sort of Marmite thing, isn't it? That's um, another thing that people either love or hate. Yeah, I've got no because that's Malcolm Clark as well, isn't it? It's, it's the same guy. Yes. Um, To the sea devils I, th I think it's really effective it's really jarring it, it, it kind of sets you on edge throughout i think um because there's no actual melody that you know it, 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 it and and it's very i don't know it it, it it kind of really accentuates the fact that these are i mean i know they're not aliens because they're from this planet but you know to, to us they are alien they're alien like um and it, and it really kind of accentuates that i mean, I mean, I've taken your point on board that, that, that he, it was Malcolm Clark being a bit kind of meta and, and, and kind of postmodern before such a thing even existed. Um, but, but no, I just found it, I found it almost, almost intolerable, to be honest. Yeah. Um, incidentally, uh, you're into your techno more than I am. Um, at some point, please do try to track down Orbital's cover version of the Sea Devils. Um, oh. In which they attempt, in which they attempt to recreate Malcolm Clark's score for that story. Well, I tell you what, if it's on YouTube, it's going in right here. smile when I learned about that. Um, any other aspects of the production? Yeah, it, it's it's just a, a bit like the rest of the story, really. Mm. It, it's just such an odd schizophrenic mix mm. of extreme professionalism back-to-back -back with unbelievably crass amateurism. What did you think about that, um, you know, probably the most famous moment of controversy in the whole show what do you think of it both thematically and in execution? And, and of course, I'm talking about the bit where um, Lytton has his hands crushed as a kind of punishment. What do, what, what do we make of that, Doc? 
if you're going to do a thing, you've got to commit to it. I mean, if you, there comes a point where you can't hedge around the fact that Cybermen do terrible things. Yeah. And you're going to do anything with Cybermen. Um, if you're going to attempt to be confrontational about what these things are and what they do to people, um, I think sooner or later um, you need to deal with the fact that they don't just shoot ray guns that go pew pew. They really hurt people and mm. they really ruin lives and mm. they capture slaves and they they really have no... You need to find some way of communicating. The fact that Cybermen don't have any understanding of why people might think it's wrong to do these things. Yes, it it, it, it kind of it, it adds to their inhumanity, doesn't it? You know, the fact that the fact that they consider that to be an acceptable punishment adds to their already inhumane nature and makes them even more inhumane. Yeah, and, and I, I I think it's the um, the complete cause and effectness. Um, of their conception of it, um, that they have an abstracted idea that in order to make flesh and blood creatures obey you, it's occasionally necessary to punish to punish them. Mm. Um, they 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 understand the punishment oblique stroke reward system of behavioural psychology. Mm-hmm. Um, but beyond understanding it as a means of eliciting behaviour out of these creatures you're trying to train, they have no understanding. I think that scene is the closest I've ever seen to an actual visualization of that line from the Tenth Planet. Um, you have no understanding of love or pride or hate or fear. Have you no emotions? It's a great line in the Tenth mm-hmm. Planet that the series then does nothing with. I think pretty much up until that moment, and it's like, no, they don't have any emotions. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And, and there's another kind of um, um, reasonably extreme moment in this where you have the I can't remember the particular crime involved, but she she's kind of forced into a, into an area where the temperature is, is is too high for her, and her blood. Yeah. You get the sense that her blood is literally kind of boiling away, and you know it's very traumatic for her. Obviously, she passes. Um, so both of these scenes, you know, to me, kind of it really kind of placed the story right where it is, which is you know, eight, kind of early, late seventies, early eighties horror inspiration you know i'm i'm thinking you know i'm I'm thinking cronenberg i'm thinking stuart gordon you know these kind of directors that really reveled in in body horror and and schlock yeah now this ties in very nicely to the next point that i was actually going to make um a couple weeks ago we did the arc in space yeah next story that arc um because it is an arc Mm. um the arc space is not merely the title of a story but um, the Ark in Space and the next three stories are literally an arc in space. Sure, good. Um, the next one is the Sontaran Experiment, and I think the Sontaran Experiment and pretty much Vengeance on Varos mm. um, bookend, no, probably Revelation of the Daleks, yeah, it is, bookend, that, bookend that, that early 70s to mid 80s um, sense of I'm going to call it cultivated crassness, but it's this idea that um, there's nothing that it's unacceptable to do um, in the context of getting your point across. Yes. When we get around to talking about the Sontaran experiment, um, I intend to draw a lot of parallels between that story and um, early 70s survival horror. So The Hills Have Eyes or Deliverance or something like that. Um, it contrasts with this one because when we see Steyer the Sontaran go to work, <clears throat> um, 
he, even though the Sontarans are an identical cloned race who don't produce, who don't reproduce sexually, um, Steyer is very obviously deriving an enormous amount of sexual satisfaction out of torturing people. Yes, um, it, it's always been a great disappointment to me that the Sontarans don't reproduce sexually because I've, I've always had my eye on that Strax. <laughs> um, is so. Um, isn't he the sort of um, pretty much um, signposted gay Sontara? Exactly. 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 Yeah. yeah correct. Um, um, so, I'm sorry, Doc. I, I, I interrupted your. I interrupted your stream of consciousness there for a, for a crass joke. Um, well, I'll, I'll punish you with an even crasser one. Um, now we know what sometimes probic vents are for, don't we? <laughs> exactly. Quite right, sir. Quite right. Um, um, so, yeah, I, I, um, I think you're really onto something here. Um, I think the Ark in Space and the Sontaran experiment are the beginning of Doctor Who's engagement with um, sort of the, the, the new extremity mm. um, in horror films. Mm -hmm. And I think within this season... Um, it was realised that, I mean, certainly by the standards of, blue, of, of the Blue Noses, but by the standards of many, many people, they might have gone just a little bit too far. Yeah. Um, and, like, not just in depiction of violence. Uh, I pointed out a couple of weeks ago that I thought the Ark in Space was the first time that um, Doctor Who had actually engaged with real mental illness as opposed yes. to something the aliens do to Revelation of the Daleks, you have um, a very clear-eyed, unflinching depiction of alcoholism, which I think is most definitely the first and last time Doctor Who has ever gone there. Oh, that's the, um, that's the DJ. Is that Alexis Sale, the DJ character? It's not him, no, it's the Doctor. Oh, um, oh really? Um, he, um, he, get, he gets tortured by having what I assume is like super strength vodka poured up his nose at one point. Ah, really? Okay, interesting, yes. I, 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 need, yeah, I need to, clearly, clearly, I need to revisit that. The ending, Doc, the, 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 I'd like to finish on, on this, if we could, because we, we, we're kind of approaching our hard out here. Um, mm -hmm. The Doctor, the, I, think, I think it's the final line in the... It, in the episode, actually, where the, the Doctor says, I don't think I've ever misjudged anybody quite as badly as I did Lytton. Um, I thought that was a really, really interesting ending. Um, it's, it, it's very downbeat, isn't it? It kind of undercuts the character of the Doctor. Now, was the idea of this to plant doubt, seeds of doubt, in the mind of the viewing audience? And if so, because I can't think of any other reason why you'd have the character say that. And if so, what's the point in that? I think it's the, it looks to me like the series almost um, recognizing that what it's been doing for the last couple of stories is depicting something borderlining um, an abusive relationship. Yeah. Um, and it's, one hopes the first of many moments of self-awareness and self-correction that the Doctor will go through. Sure, so, so, so it's the start of the redemptive path. Yeah, I mean, um, I would, would like to think so. That's really interesting because I can't think of an equivalent ending in the whole of in the whole of Who. You know, I mean, the Doctor might as well be staring straight down the camera at this point. You know, lo looking straight at the audience and smashing the fourth wall down. Yeah, um, and um, I. I certainly can't think of another story which finishes with the Doctor going, 
um, it's all gone horribly wrong and it's all my fault. I fucked up real good and proper this time now, didn't I? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean that, that, you know, that, that's the sense that you get, isn't it? You know, it's, it, 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 it's almost as bleak as the end of uh, Zombie Flesh Eaters. You know, they, 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 they think they've survived the zombies and they're, they're cruising into New York Harbour only to discover that, oh, no, the zombies have taken over New York too. Um, you know, um, it, think, it, it's that uh, level of despondency. Look- uh, look out! Zombies have entered the building. That's um, right. If there could be yeah, a Doctor right. Who story, which if there could be a Doctor Who story which ended with those words, <laughs> I would be happy. Yeah, ever. But, but I mean, that's my final point on on this particular story. I must be honest. I really, really enjoyed it. I did. Clearly, episode one is stronger than episode two. Um, I was fearful for episode two because my my memories of this. You know, from a young, from being a younger man, was I loved episode one and absolutely hated episode two. I, would, I did not have those that, that strong that strong reaction to episode two. I thought it was perfectly functional, just not quite as strong as part one. I, th- I thought this was a rollicking, rollicking good adventure, Docker. You know, and we were talking last time, and uh, you know about the scale. You know, in, in terms of scoring these, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm going to do both. So I'd, I'd, I'd give this a, a, a really, really strong 8 out of 10. So on your 20-point on, on your scale, that would, that would put it at... What would that be, Doc? That would be plus, plus 4, um, would it, I think. Uh, yeah, uh, no, no. Um, because uh, mine, uh, mine, mine goes between minus 10 and plus 10. Um, and uh, like zero is as poor, bland, and unmemorable as you can get. Yeah. Um, minus ten is like your horns of Naimon or your underwater menace. Um, not good by any recognisable standards, but great nevertheless. Oh sure. Um, oh, yes, of course. And then, so your um, effectively my zero is your uh, as as Sutek would say. My zero is your five. <laughs> so that's true. Yeah, that's true. So on on my scale, I'm sorry, listeners, if this is baffling to you, it's totally baffling to me too. On my scale, it's eight out of ten, and on your scale, I'm giving this eight out of ten as well. What we did, listeners, was to set out to make a scoring system that works on the same level of logic <laughs> as the plot of Attack of the Cybermen. Like Eric Saywood, it makes sense to us and fuck you all. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, so you've got my scores on the doors there. On on the most scale, it's eight out of ten. And on the Doctor Lequesson scale, it's also plus eight out of ten. So um I think the reason we remember episode two as being not nearly as good as episode one is because we really want to see we we really want to see all of that stuff on Earth with Lytton and his friends. Um, basically, we get to the end of episode one, and I still want to see the bank robbery go down. Mm. Um, I still want to see what the Cybermen in the sewers are doing. Because, by the way, there's only four of them that get on the TARDIS when it goes to Telos. Mm-hmm. There's still a good dozen or so prowling around down there, you know. Sure, yes, yes. So what happened to those guys? Um, yeah, uh, so... so um, I want to know what happens to those guys. I want to see the bank job go down. Um, I I wish a few more people had survived. Um, I would have loved to have seen um, Russell at least foil the bank robbery or get the money back. Um, I would have liked... I, I'm kind of gutted that Lytton got killed um, mm-hmm. because he's such a great character he and I miss him so very much. Yeah. 
And I think the reason people ended up disliking episode two is because it's not like episode one. Yes, yes. Um, if it had it. been, if episode two had been an episode in season twenty-one, uh, it would be much more fondly remembered today. But um, so, in the end, because because episode two fails to, to fulfil the promise of episode one, um, I can't give this anything like um, an eight. Um, the production does so that that thing loses it a point off the top marks. The production design, many aspects of it, lose it. Um, however, I'm going to restore to it a point um, for having the balls to be on telly and have a plot that doesn't make any sense. Yes, um, I just think that's one kind of bravery. Mm-hmm. Um, looking from the perspective of 2021. Um, where everything has to be spelt out and the viewer has to be treated like an idiot. Um, I choose to view the plot of the story as, well, you know what? If you walked into a situation that complicated and that intertwined, by the end of it, you probably wouldn't understand everything that's going on either. That's a great point, though. Um, yeah, really, really good. There is, yeah. A point, there is a point which I wanted to bring up earlier on. Um, if you ever watch any Japanese gangster films from the early 1970s, they have plots exactly like this. Um, and you're expected to understand that if you were suddenly catapulted into the middle of a gang war in um, Namba or in Shinjuku um, in the early 1970s, there would be people coming and going. Like half of your life would be this guy you've never met before, this guy who just walked up to you in the street and got in your face for no good reason. Someone disappears because they got killed somewhere. Someone disappears because they blew town. And they're full of characters arriving unannounced and then vanishing off the... I don't know whether there's any influence on the story, but I choose to um, view the nonsensicality of the plot um, as strength and as a conundrum for me to work out. And obviously... It's one of those great pieces of Doctor Who pub conversation, and that always gets it an extra point. Sure. So um, I've come back with seven. Now, is that on your scale or my scale, Doc? Uh, that's on um, <laughs> that's on my scale. Right. So um, on your scale, on your scale, that would be five plus three point five, which equals eight point eight point five on the wow. scale. That's pretty strong on my scale. That sounds stronger on my scale than on yours, Doc. This, 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 <laughs> wow. <laughs> anyway, anyway enough, math, enough maths. It's too late for mathematics. Um, that about does it for this episode of DDSOS. Join us next time when we will be discussing Sylvester McCoy's second story, Paradise Towers. Must we, Doc? Oh, I suppose, yes, we must. Are you going to be there? <laughs> See, I, of course I'm going to be there. I wouldn't miss it for the world. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to your take on paradise. this. <laughs> <laughs> Bring on the McCoy. See you next time, guys. <laughs> <laughs>